Welcome to the Pogle Podcast. The Pogle Podcast is a new conversation from the Pogle Project that celebrates innovative educators both in and out of the classroom. You will hear about what inspired them to become teachers and how the practice of student-centered education transformed their classrooms and improved outcomes for their students. Learn how they're innovating outside the classroom as well. Join us as we think out loud with Pogel educators, researchers, and others working to transform teaching and learning for the 21st century. Our guest today is Dahlia Hoffman. Dahlia has been teaching English in Chicago, Illinois for the last 12 years after concluding that a career in human resources management could not offer either intrinsic satisfaction or intellectual challenges. In 2008, while pursuing her teacher certification, she began teaching English as a second language and college readiness skills at a local community college. Upon completing the teacher certification with endorsements in English and ESL, she transitioned into teaching English language and literature at a public high school, focusing primarily on AP literature. She first joined the Pogel community in 2012, and she now writes and utilizes her own Pogel activities in order to teach poetry, reading, and literary analysis of poetry, as well as grammar. Dahlia holds an MA in Medieval English Literature from Michigan State University and a BA in English Literature and Judaic Studies from the University of Michigan. Dahlia and Wayne, thanks very much for being on the program today. And Wayne, I will now pass the baton over to you. Okay, well, Dahlia, thank you so much for joining us this morning for a little chat about Pogel. Thank you for having me. But I like to start all of these interviews not talking about Pogel, but talking about you, the interviewee. So if you are up for it, uh, how about a few little quick questions? Nothing too deep here, so we can get to know you a little better. Sounds great. Okay, so you teach literature, and that I sh- I'm sure involves culture as part of the intertwining with the literature. And I, I thought about modern culture and, and what the big aspects of modern culture were. And to me, they're music and they're sports. And I think science fiction now is probably the literature of the day. It seems to be, at least in the popular culture. So I've got three little short either ors. You know, which do you prefer? Okay, so in music, would it be classical music or classic rock? That's a tough one. I, I'm really evenly split on that because I was raised with classical music. My father was a, had once been an aspiring opera singer. Oh. So our house was, you know, filled with recordings of Verdi. Just that is what you heard from the stereo system all the mm-hmm. time, Mozart. I've been playing piano since I was four, so that that speaks to the heart of me. But when I started to spread my wings and explore what other music is out there, I did land on classic rock. I grew up in the 70s in San Francisco. It was oh, all- okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that, that's a hard one for me. Yeah. Well, let's go down the classic rock rabbit hole. Uh, fav- favorite classic rock group? Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin. Oh, <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Um, favorite band member? John Paul Jones. John Paul Jones. That is, that is, yeah. yes. Very underrated bass player and a great arranger. Uh, yeah, he, that, he's great. And classically trained. His yes. training 
classical music. It, they, they go hand in hand. Absolutely. And how about your favorite Led Zeppelin song that doesn't include the words Stairway in Heaven? That's not on the list. Uh, Dazed and Confused is my absolute favorite song. There you go. Fantastic. All right. <laughs> so let's move to science fiction. I guess the biggest franchises now are Star Trek and Star Wars. Which do you prefer? Star Trek. Star Trek? All the way. Me too. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I, I, I just finished binge watching uh, Discovery and found oh, that really great. Yeah. And although I must admit the Mandalorian was really good on the Star Wars side, but yeah, I got to admit, Star, Star Trek just seems a little richer to me. I, I, I don't know. That's, that's great. Well, they, have, um, they have two different uh, guiding principles, right? In Star mm -hmm. Trek, the guiding principle is about peaceful exploration, peaceful discovery, seeking out civilizations and learning to coexist. And in Star Wars, the premise is combat. Well, it's right in the name, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah and and it, it's that simple and, and that's what kids love are all those, you know, epic battle scenes. And it's yeah. not, it doesn't have a real vision that's sustainable to me in terms of civilizations. If you're talking about futuristic societies. I hadn't thought of it that way, but I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And my last category is sports, because sports is actually coming back a little bit. Uh, uh, baseball or football? Going to go with football. Football. Oh. Yeah. Well, let's see. College or professional? College. College. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, who's your go-to team? Michigan. Michigan, the Wolverines. Wolverines. Yes, yes. My Virginia Tech Hokies lost a bowl game in, in heartbreaking fashion to Michigan a few years ago. I was going to ask you Army-Navy, but I'll leave you off the hook there. There is a correct answer to Army-Navy. I know there's a correct answer. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't need to know what that is. <laughs> okay, fantastic. So you decided at some point to become a teacher. If you hadn't become a teacher, what would you have done? Well, actually, I became a teacher midway through my career. I got lost in the world of corporate human resources. Mm. And even though both of my parents were teachers, when I got my master's, I had actually dropped out of a PhD program. I had wanted to teach at the college level. But the economy was terrible. Um, and my colleagues in the program who were getting their PhDs we're not finding jobs. They were saddled with enormous debt and mm -hmm. they didn't know what to do. And so I decided, you know, wrap up the masters and then find out what you're eligible to do with a masters in medieval literature. <laughs> okay. So um, I was doing grant writing for a little bit and then through headhunting, I somehow found myself in corporate human resources uh, with a global firm. And I did that for the better part of 12 years. And I knew halfway through that I wanted to teach, but the prospect of leaving everything, going back to school, unemployment, more student debt, mm -hmm. I just couldn't picture doing that, but it was always right. on my mind. And then in 2007, I was one of the victims of the economic crash. I was handed a severance check and I took it to my university, you know, in my zip code to get teacher certification. So that was 2008. So I did become a teacher 
no thanks to a terrible economy, but it's the best work I've done. <laughs> yeah, and you, and you haven't looked back since then. That's great. Well, now, Pogo specifically is populated by STEM teachers. I mean, it is, in large, a STEM organization, uh, and many, many of whom are chemists. Uh, I, I, I'm a chemist. I won't apologize. Um, but you teach English. So how did you get involved in using Pogo activities in English, and was it a smooth transition? So I teach, uh, I teach in an urban public high school with a STEM focus, and my colleague across the hall from me, who has become my friend, who is also a chemist, who is a recent steering committee member, Yura Calliday. All right, yeah. The Peach Award recipient. Yes. Um, he and I, because of stand, you know, we stand at our doors greeting students in passing periods, and so we, we started forming, you know, camaraderie, and we started talking about what we wish we could see more of in our students, and I was despairing about the lack of intellectual curiosity that kids would rather receive the information than seek it out. So he told me about Pogo and he asked me if I did a little in-house professional development, would you want to come? So I did and I was hooked because this idea of giving the kids the text and giving them enough structure to let them seek it out rather than asking me, well, what do you think the right answer is? Which is mm -hmm. the go-to response to my question. I thought it was brilliant. And later that summer, I went to my first three-day workshop. That was 2012, eight years ago. So what made it not smooth is that nobody was doing Pogo in English. So if I wanted to do this, I was going to invest an enormous amount of time coming up with models, coming up with the right questions. So, you know, when I look at my earliest Pogos now, I cringe because, you know, I didn't have the training I needed, but I was right. so committed to this idea that the kids need to collaborate in a meaningful way to seek out the meaning, seek out what's most important in these texts. So, so the transition is made difficult by not having resources on the Pogo website, but, right. but it's, it's turned out to be a really creative outlet that I enjoy. Like I, I, find a lot of creative uh energy when i write poems so so that's how it how, how it began so do yeah. you do you find that um you know again pogo was designed for stem classrooms do you do you find that there's any significant modifications that you make to your pogos that would be different than say a pogo that's written in chemistry you know i i adjusted the team roles a little bit because those specific roles don't necessarily match up in uh, language arts. But I still came up with teams of four with clear responsibilities. Um, you know, before I was doing that, you could call it group work and one of the roles was timekeeper, the kid who stared at the clock and not at the work on the desk. Mm -hmm. So Pogo so gave a really nice uh, way to figure out how do you keep everybody meaningfully occupied in this shared outcome. So I did change the roll cards. Um, that's one thing that I did. Another thing is that um, before I came into Pogol, I became interested in standards-based grading. So, so my assignments are not worth points. You know, it's A, B, C, D, or F. It's degrees of mastery. So my rubrics 
weren't based on, you know, 90 to 100 is an A. It's, you know, A work looks like, and here's a list of bullet points in these categories. Hobo really lends itself to that because mm. you're really isolating what it is that you're trying to get the kids to master so you can evaluate them. And part of that is also about what kind of a student you are. Those are the conversations Yuri Kaladay and I had at the outset. What makes you a scholar? Are, are you the kid who just flips through the pages quickly? Are you stopping and looking upwards that you don't know? What do you invest in the learning experience? So through Cobol, I came up with a, a goals for success rubric um, where I measure kids on the quality of their interactions, um, their contributions. Are they able to make progress or do they collaborate seemingly meaningfully, but really spinning their wheels and then off topic at some point. These to me are important measures of the kind of learning you do because we're preparing them for what's out there. And in college, if they don't have the ability to sit and focus and attack the task in front of them, when so much of the time is gonna be their own rather than having a teacher you know, circling around, they need to learn those skills in high school. So I found that Cobol allowed me to hold into those expectations of being productive in the classroom, the only space that I can control in terms of what they do intellectually. So remind me what the question was, because I'm not sure if I veered off course. Uh, let's see. Uh, the modifications that you've made to Pogol to, to fit into your environment in the non-STEM classroom. Well, I decided to devote, because I need... I need schedule, so Thursdays are my pogo days, uh, and the kids know that on Mondays we'll do one thing, Tuesdays it's always another, Thursdays are pogo days, no matter what. Mm -hmm. So creating that routine, so that meant giving up other things that I might have liked to do, but pogo is so important to me, and the outcomes that they get are so important if they really engage, that I think they end up covering what I used to do before I was um, a pogo practitioner. No, that's, that's very interesting. Uh, I, I like your grading system because, again, my students, uh, it's always about the points. Uh, they seem to be more, more interested in what their average is than how much they really know. And sometimes yeah. those points don't tell you everything. That's for sure. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. I, I always thought that pogo, again, although developed for a STEM environment, was, was a lot like my humanities classes that I had in high school and in college because, you know, we would, we would be asked to contribute. We would be asked to think. We'd be asked to interpret. We'd be asked to uh, think deeply, maybe not in groups. I don't remember ever in my chemistry classes being asked to interpret anything or to think deeply about something. It, it seems like it should lend itself to a humanities sort of environment uh, that it, it would just work. So you mentioned URIC. Uh, you didn't mention that it's actually the Von Steuben Metropolitan Science Center in Chicago. Is that correct? That is correct. That, where you guys teach. So that doesn't sound like a typical high school. Could you describe your school and, and maybe the students that you have? So it's a magnet high school, which means it's not a neighborhood school, right? So our students right. who are admitted come from all over the city. You have to have a certain minimum Lexile score in the testing 
think it's eighth grade, Lexile testing. So there's, there's a lowest common denominator on reading scores. And then, I'm not even sure, but I think that it's something of a lottery-based system. You, you select the preference and you wait to hear if they picked you once you qualified at that lowest bar of the Lexiles. So the kids who are going to choose our school are choosing it for one of two reasons. One is really they are planning STEM careers. Two, we have an outstanding scholars program. So, so it's not, I wouldn't call it a gifted program, but it, it isn't academically much more rigorous. So there are kids who would want to come to a school that's got almost 1,800 students and be a part of this program that's a smaller cohort of that without going to maybe a selective enrollment school where you're surrounded by as many as 4,000 all gifted kids, because that's mm -hmm. an overwhelming environment. In terms of demographics, we are, oh, I can't swear to it. I, we are, I think, close to 60% Latino. And then I'm not sure where it breaks down, but we are overwhelmingly Latino. The school is located in a, in a neighborhood that is more Latino, and mm -hmm. they've been taking more of the um, community, neighborhood community kids uh, in the last five, six years, I would say. So uh, you, you have all kinds of kids and you still have the kids who don't want to be in school at all, but their parents didn't want them to go to their neighborhood school because their neighborhood school, you know, is not what they want for their children. So, so you have all kinds of kids, the motivated ones, the not motivated ones. Yeah. So you teach English and, and that involves literature, right? I assume both American and English literature. Yes. And the classics. I assume as part of that. Um, I, it's been many, many years since I was in an English class or a literature class, but um, it, the world has changed a lot since I was in high school. And do today's students have the same appreciation for our literary past? Because uh, we live in such a fast pace and live in the moment society. Uh, does that make the classics a bit passe for these students or do they, they migrate to it? Well, you know, I wish that we could teach more books than we do. So that means that we have to select very carefully what we are going to cover in class. So for example, I do teach Shakespeare in AP Lit because every AP literature student should read Shakespeare. But I also really need them to understand why do we read Shakespeare hundreds of years later? What is the relevance? So, so I do give them that, but there is also at the same time, it's not so much the, the pull of our fast-paced society, but kids want to read literature written by people who look like them, who have lived the experience they're living. So I think that that's more of the drive than saying that it's about the fast-paced nature. I, so curricula is now pretty diversified as far as, you know, including authors of color, uh, international literature, because we have so many kids who come from, from different parts of the world, and maybe they're the first generation, or maybe they're the immigrant generation. So there's a lot of, um, I don't want to call it pressure, but there, there's a lot of motivation to help kids see themselves in the literature to engage them in it because mm -hmm. 
for the most part, I would say my students are not eager readers. And reading might be, well, I have to read 30 pages, so I'm just going to flip through the pages, and I have accomplished flipping through 30 of these, as opposed to really reading. So, so trying to find something that really speaks to them, that really opens their heart, uh, maybe grapples with issues that are very close to home to engage them, that's the balance we strike without dismissing the classics because mm -hmm. we can't dismiss those either. It's, there's something to learn, to memorialize and to carry with us. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure it looks very, very different than when I was in high school and we will not talk about how many years ago that was. So, <laughs> uh, but I do remember having a, a real fondness for Dickens. Uh, I, oh. I, I thoroughly love Dickens. <laughs> And well, yeah, lots of words, but at the same time, I like the picture of uh, society that he painted and it was very, very interesting. Um, so you also teach a topic that you call musical interpretation of literature. I'm not quite sure that is. It sounds fascinating. Could you expand upon that? Sure. So I'll give you the high level and then we dive in. There are works of literature, Shakespeare, that have had such a tremendous impact that they've been recreated uh, as ballet, as opera, right? Mm -hmm. Romeo and Juliet is a ballet. Uh, two different composers created two different uh, compositions called Romeo and Juliet. There's Prokofiev, right? And there's Tchaikovsky. So, and then you have for example, The Color Purple by Alice Walker that won the Pulitzer in the mid-80s. That became a musical within the last five years or so, a very successful musical. How are people taking these texts and presenting them through musical interpretation? Well, a few years back, we were celebrating Shakespeare's 400th birthday. And because I have a professional affiliation with Chicago Shakespeare Theater, their director of education asked me if I would like to team up with Chicago Symphony Orchestra to help them write a curriculum to teach Romeo and Juliet because they were going to teach it musically, but you can't teach it musically if you don't know the story, which means you have to look at the text. Mm -hmm. There's no way around it. So we spent uh, a good year or two writing this curriculum that taught it was geared originally for elementary school kids, teaching them musical concepts so that they could get comfortable with that language in order to then interpret what is happening musically at a point that we know this is happening in the text. And how do you understand the musical choices the composer made to interpret this text that came first? Mm -hmm. So this, is, this has been a really powerful experience for me and I wasn't teaching Romeo and Juliet because truthfully, I don't like that play at all. But I did, I did adapt it to teach Othello and I used Verdi's opera Othello as the musical text. And we were taking soliloquies from the play and then scenes from the opera. And the, opera, the particular version of the opera that I chose was by Franco Zeffirelli He's the guy who did the Romeo and Juliet in the 60s with Olivia Hussey. Oh, okay. yeah. Mm -hmm. A famous one. So he, he's this musical and, and 
theatrical directing genius. So what did he do here? So I ended up having the kids juxtapose soliloquies with arias after having taught them the musical concepts to ask them, do you think that these were the right musical choices? Use the soliloquy text to support your answers. And by the end of this unit for their final exam, the kids were writing an argumentation essay about who understood the story better, Shakespeare or Verdi? And kids were pounding the table for Verdi. He clearly <laughs> gets it. His use of the cello when, when it, it was, I still get shivers from it because I feel like I really accomplished what I wanted here. I made them listen to opera. They would beg me not to turn the video off when the bell was about to ring. They, they were really into it. And these are yeah. high school freshmen. But I feel like I don't know that they get this exposure at home. So what can I give them to take home with them? Not everybody who's a Pogo practitioner becomes involved in the community and is a working member of the project. Uh, how long have you been associated with the project? And what do you like most about working within, with a bunch of STEM people? I, I went to my first training in 2012. I loved the people I met. I, you know, I love science fiction. I like scientists. So, so this for me was not uncomfortable. I didn't feel like I was an outsider. The work of the project is really important to me. First of all, I think that we have so much room to grow and so much has already been done. But if I can offer an English language arts dimension to our offerings, if someday there will be a link on the page to that, that would be incredible. We, the Pogol community is a really strong, spectacular group of people. I like talking to them. I have felt very validated by being surrounded by people who don't really understand what I'm doing, but want to know. Mm -hmm. They're interested. Uh, people have networked me to other people that they think would be interested in this. So it, it's very powerful because otherwise I would just be an island. So I'm, I'm no. very grateful for this community. Very yes. much so. Yes. No, I, I know what you mean. I've lived on that Pogol Island. And even though, you know, you, you keep doing what you're doing, it's a lot more fun when there are people around that understand you and know what you're going through and you can, you can lean on from time to time. Right. So you teach at a school that is designed for science majors, science and mathematics uh, people. And there's a common stereotype with science and communication that a lot of scientists don't communicate well, that uh, they may be very good at science, but they're not good at English or literature and communication. Um, do you see that uh, played out with your students? And would you like to comment on that? I'll tell you a story about my first year at Bond Student. Uh, as a new teacher, I volunteered for everything, including being a judge at our annual science fair. And so I went to a poster and I was staring at it and it honestly didn't make sense to me. So I reread it and truly it didn't make sense. And so I asked the young lady who was standing nearby, is this your poster? And she said, yes. And I said to her, so I have some questions. I'm confused and I showed her where. And she stopped me and said, wait a minute. Aren't you the new English teacher? 
And I said, yes. And she said, well, that's why you don't understand what's going on here. <laughs> so so um, I don't think that is why, but I brought it back to my science colleague and I said, you know, maybe as these kids advance, you should, we could perhaps create some kind of a partnership where English teachers help them with the write-ups because as they advance, they're actually going to end up speaking almost extemporaneously in front of a small panel explaining the significance of their research. And I said to them, because if, if these kids are just throwing numbers on a board and, and trying to tell me this is what's happening, it's the teachers like me who end up getting positions at these foundations, evaluating grant applications. And if we don't understand the mm. project, we will not award the grant. That's how it works. And I knew this from my grant writing days. So we did try to do that. And then in general, the kids were, were asked to really work with their English teachers. So it was less formal, but kids who advanced were ultimately really pushed to now work with an English teacher, which seems strange to them. But they're there is a need to be able to articulate not only what you've done, but why it's significant. You're right. There is that other stereotype that English and humanities people don't understand science or math. And she immediately went there because <laughs> obviously if you didn't understand it, it wasn't her fault. It was your fault. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's great. We probably should do as much as we can to, to kind of break out those stereotypes and get rid of them. Yeah. Okay, so I've got one more question for you. If you had to pick one thing you've learned about teaching to share with other educators in general, what would that be? One thing that I've learned about teaching, yes. Well, I would say this, that you have to really love what you're teaching and you have to be willing to be vulnerable enough to show your students how much you love what you're doing, why this text makes your heart sing. Because if you're just flipping through the pages like they are, the class is flat, but if they see your passion and you have to be willing to let down your guard and, and be a human, not just a teacher, that's a real shift and, and it can be a scary shift, but to show them why this is so moving. Uh, if, if this particular scene makes you cry, show them. It's a powerful moment. So you have to have a true love for what you do in this field because it is so challenging and it is moving very quickly that you have to remember why you're there. Daya, thanks so much for coming aboard and sharing some time with us and uh, giving us a perspective that maybe we don't all have. I really appreciated this conversation. Thank you very much to all of you for listening to today's conversation on the Pogel Podcast. Intro and outro music of our podcast is produced by Pogel practitioner Wayne Pearson. Please join us next time as we think out loud with Pogel educators, researchers, and others working to transform teaching and learning for the 21st century.